One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. If you enjoy this episode, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can help me to grow the show by leaving a review on iTunes. For anyone who does subscribe, review or share, thank you. I appreciate it. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where I talk tips for success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Hello everyone, uh, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, someone whose work I greatly admire, uh, Mr Alan Kitching. So hello Alan. Hello to you all. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, before we get into the interview, I'm just going to give you a quick overview of Alan's uh, prolific background. So Alan is one of the world's most foremost practitioners of letterpress, typographic design and printmaking. He is renowned for his expressive use of wood and metal letter forms in creating visuals for commissions and his own limited edition prints. Alan has also had solo shows in London and Barcelona and contributed to various exhibitions including, this is where I get this horribly wrong pronunciation-wise, Pompidou Centre in Paris, Mm -hmm. the British Library and Barbican Art Gallery in London. Mm -hmm. In 1944, Alan was appointed as the Royal Design for Industry and elected a member... 1994. 1994. 94, yeah. 1944, that would be a different story, right? Uh, Royal Designer for Industry and elected member of the Alliance Graphique Internationale. Yep. Uh, Alan is an honorary fellow of the Royal College of Art and visiting professor at the University of Arts in London. Right. Uh, he's conducted his workshops and given talks to industry, art schools and design conventions in the UK, Europe, Australia and South Africa. Previous clients include Borough Market, the British Library, Creative Review, DNAD, Days and Confused, The Guardian, National Theatre... I could go on and on and on. I think I'll save the audience. But basically, you've yeah. worked for just about everyone. Just about. Uh, you've been busy. And how are you? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you, on this lovely summer's evening. Yeah, it is, uh, <laughs> it's, it's summer's. Uh, it's beautiful slash clammy. <laughs> one or the other. Uh, so let's start off easy. I just thought that um, I would ask you, you know, you're very gifted technically. Why did you decide to dedicate yourself to letterpress printing? Uh, well, um, when I left school at age 14... I mean, I wanted to be a poster artist, but the northeast of England, where I came from, Darlington, County Durham, in those days, it was people making loc- steam locomotives, bridges. When we were a kid at school, I mean, we were drummed into us that we are, the, we are the people who built the Sydney Harbour Bridge. We are the people who put the bridge over the Zambezi at Victoria Falls. You know, it was heavy industrial area I came from. Yeah. And um, so to be a poster artist was a bit uh, an odd thing to choose. And so was there a poster in particular that was like, you know, that drew drew your attention? Um, I remember seeing, it wasn't a poster, but it was an ad in the local paper, the Northern Echo. Uh, It was an ad for um, Freedom From Hunger. Um, And it was a drawing of of a starving child. And the ribs were showing through his ribcage. On the other side, it was ears of corn. It's a metaphor for the, the ribs, you see, yeah. and vice versa. That was Ab- Abram Games. And that was Abram Games. And uh, that was the first thing I kind of recognised, that, you know, there's, in design, there's something more going on than what you just think of, you know, drawing 
When yeah. you were a kid, you're drawing horses, you're drawing cars, you're drawing stuff there was, like there that. There was a concept there. Yeah. I think uh, his work has, um, you know, inspired me as well. I actually found a one of his 1951, um, uh, what was it, the British uh, exhibition for, you the, know, one the, of his classic the, pieces. The Festival of Britain. Festival of Britain, You designed yeah. the logo for that. Yeah, uh, and I happened to stumble into it in a second-hand shop and I was like, bought yeah, that, it's yeah, framed yeah. up in my room, yeah, love yeah. it. Um, so one of your early influences as well as um, as, as well as Abram Gaines was actually Jan Titchold, is that how you pronounce it? Chickold. Chickold. Um, what was it that drew you to his work? Well, I saw his work in printing magazines and I just thought it was so explicitly done. The the black and the white and the the use of the space and the the caps there and something else there and it was all just very spatially kind of worked out and it looked exciting because um, the only thing I'd been used to looking at is sort of symmetrical you know book book title pages and things like that all the types centred and it's all in capital letters and it's all beautifully letter spaced and it's all like that you know traditional stuff and Chico's work was a, a brand new thing so this is one of the things that really amazes me about looking at your early uh, history, is how kind of uh, you know you, your attention to detail on over these what thing what many people would consider cons- consider kind of trivial bits of things like you know a, a letterhead or something like that, but it was just beautiful and the amount of effort and everything that went into it. What do you think made you uh, so attentive to to such like to to details and such small things. Well, um, to go just to go back to my start of the question about why uh, why I became what I'm doing. It was the the poster thing didn't work out, but the nearest thing they could think of, uh, you know, when I was fourteen, fifteen, was the printing industry, which was a quite a very you know astute and a wise thing to suggest, because it it, had, it dealt with lettering and words and things like that. So I thought that was that was the nearest thing that could get me to go into. And, and when I went into that world, I loved it. I just fell in love with the whole the type and the and the whole typography thing, you know, it just, just was a real rich vein of things to work on. And um and in doing that, you it is a very precise finicky sort of business. And I suppose that's where You've got to pay attention to very fine detail and spacing and how things fit together and things like that. It's it's kind of ingrained into you from the from that from the very start. So talking about ingraining it into you, uh, am I right in saying that your uh, to some degree your mentor was An- Anthony? See, all all of the people that you've worked with, <laughs> the names are quite difficult. Anthony Frosso. Yes, that's yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, in your book, it mentions that he was quite a strict man, uh, but you know, for any designs out there, he's kind of a legend in his own right. Yeah. Um, if you had to say, uh, what was like one of some of the things that you learned from him? Um, sort of integrity, uh, honesty, and being uh, honesty and integrity. Yeah, I think that was what you learned. What I learned in terms of. So how would that manifest itself as a, a creatively? Well, Anthony was very strict in his work. Um, he would only use certain sizes of type. Um, he would only use black and white, really. Maybe a bit of red. Um, it was very mathematical. And I learned that from Anthony. Mathematics was the important to the, 
the business of design. And how did he? How was he able to justify, you know, these things to clients? Oh, he didn't have any clients, I don't think. Right. <laughs> well, he might have had, but he didn't. I know he kept them for long. But uh, he was he's mainly a great teacher, Anthony, a theorist. Um, he didn't produce much work in his time, but he had a, an, an incredible influence on people because he was a very charismatic person. I mean, no, the mighty pentagram of today. Alan Fletcher was no longer, sadly no longer with us, but Alan Fletcher is one of the England's great designers. He was taught by Anthony, as was Colin Forbes. Um, and Derek Birdsell, you know, started Omnific. They were all, and Ken Garland, you know, the greats of British graphic design in the six, 50s and 60s. They were all taught by Anthony. It's funny, I was just reading The Art of Looking Sideways just yesterday. Yeah, right, yeah, um, exactly. But you wouldn't think so sometimes by looking at Fletcher's work. Yeah. But underpinning it, all those guys, there was this sort of integrity of purpose, honestly, honest, honestly, uh, an honest approach to things. Um, and you feel that was fostered I, by him? I think it was, actually. Yeah. He was very strict and very severe. And uh, yet, yet the, the man himself wasn't. He was a bit of a shambles, his thinking was very concise. Um, what was a design education actually like back then? And as a teacher yourself, how do you feel it's changed? Well, um, this was the days before the BA, the BA courses started. Just was on the brink, really, because Anthony, I met Anthony in 64. So about 64, 65, the BA courses came in. And I think, well, I was at the Watford College of Technology, the School of Art, where Anthony, I met him, where he came. He became a senior lecturer. And in those days, there was all these smaller art schools around the place. Um, and what was a very good one, because it was near London. It was 15 minutes out of Houston. So it attracted some of the best designers who were working in London at that time. <clears throat> and in those days, it didn't like it is now. There was like maybe half a dozen really good designers, of some of which I've already mentioned. And they all kind of came up to Watford to teach a day a week. Um, so the teaching was done through professional designers rather than people who did it as a... Um, like a career, like a just career a season, job. seasoned. Yeah. Which, um, and that's what kept it very lively and active because you just... They weren't teaching. They were just telling you what they did and how they did it. So do you think cause that's what's missing from today's education, the ability for top-flight designers well, to go in? I think it does, yeah. Well, I mean, they, they, I suppose they still do, but the whole structure's different now. It's more, it was very more relaxed. It was up to the head of the department who he got and and now he organises his own school and course, where now it's it's a bigger thing. And so do you still go to the Royal College of Art now and no, then? No. no. I, left there, I left there in um, 2006. Right. So you have kind of one of the biggest collections of letterpress typography... Uh, and as a result, I guess, to some degree, you've got a little bit of a monopoly over the production method. Um, was that a conscious thing, or is that kind of just happened quite organically? It just happened, but at the same time, when I went in, my, my workshop was in Clerkenwell, when Clerkenwell wasn't like it is now. It was a desert. There was nobody went there. It was completely, <laughs> you know... Um, but the workshop was fantastic, and I was there like 16 years. But in the beginning, I had to work out what to do with all this stuff. 
So the first couple of years were experimenting with types and colour and paper, and, and I was I was discovering what paper was. Until you start to use paper like that and print on it yourself, and look at the surface and look at the weights and the colours, you don't really understand paper until you've started to work with it, really. And so in those first two years, I was really finding out for myself and experimenting with colour. I had these blocks of blocks, big poster blocks and type and things, and um, and then I started to slowly get uh, commissions. So uh, I wanted to ask you just a, a couple of questions regarding some of the processing terminology and stuff. Um, so, what's the difference between <clears throat> hot and cold letter setting? Uh, hanging indentations I'm familiar with, but I just thought I'd ask it for the sake of the audience. And Francesco rules and folding classes. What? No, uh, n- none of these? Um, hot metal comes <laughs> I'm, from... I'm, I'm glad you said that as well, because that's the way I feel. Hot metal is the metal cast from, you know, molten metal. Right. Monotype. They, they had the monopoly on it. Um, and beautifully done. It was beautifully cast. That very, very accurate and... That's where type was cast and set. Um, coal metal, coal typesetting, as it was called, was really, I think, it was either fo- photographically done um, and then letter set. So wow. there's no metal involved. It was all pre, um, you know, cut and... Right. Um, you prefer the word founts, uh, founts, which is the original word for fonts. Mm. And uh, I thought I'd ask why you prefer that terminology. And also, I hear that you prefer red and black inks over others. And I thought I'd ask why that is as well. The fonts is, well, again, back to my beginning. It was spelled F-O-U-N-T. Yes, font, F-O-U-N-T, not F-O-N-T. Um, and I've just, I, I, I just, just have it. I just... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just like to keep it... I always... Write it like that. Yeah. 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 And the black and... and the, say again. And black and red inks. Well, the tradition was that, as I said earlier, printing was always done in black ink. Paper was white, the, the, the ink was black. And uh, that was the standard for everything. Um, and if you wanted to do a little bit of decoration, you put use red, which was a very nice contrast to it. Uh, and that... That survived for years and years and years, you know. The second colour was always red. So, but when you work with different clients nowadays, obviously they own brand colours and all the rest of it. I don't bother, but the things I do myself, the prints I make myself, um, I've uh, I've experimented with colour in all sorts of directions. I mean, I mixed all the colours myself. But you still prefer the uh, the black, white and red as the three most striking... No, I don't. I don't. I keep away from it now. Oh, really? Mm. <laughs> um, there must have been times when kind of people encouraged you to, uh, you know, work on other things or say, why don't you try other stuff or whatever. What's made you stay so strong to, to the letterpress? Um, well, it's a, it's a unique printing process, um, and the image you get from it is unique. I mean, people can copy it on a computer, but some people don't want to do that. They want, they want the, the real thing, so I, I'm pleased they asked me. And um, it's, uh, it's it's getting more, I think, for me, more akin to uh, painting and fine art than graphic design. 
even though my background is in graphics, uh, one is more and more influenced by painters and galleries, what one sees around. It's interesting that you say you see it more as art because when I look at the work, and uh, you, in your book you talk about around the time kind of computers coming out, grunge style started to emerge because mm. of the different techniques that you could mm. use. Um, I see the stuff that you do as kind of reminiscent of Bauhaus and uh, Swiss design. Um, what did you think when all these new styles started to emerge that were completely vastly different and creatively wild? Were you anti them or...? Well, I, mean, that's, that's, I came from that background of the, the Bauhaus and the Swiss-German school of design, if you like. Um, uh, but I, when I started printing myself, I wanted to try and take it somewhere else. So, so I would look at people like... Um, cause when I was at Watford, I got a very broad education in the arts. And one of the people that uh, struck in my mind was Paul Clay, a great colourist and wonderful constructions of his paintings he made somehow. Um, juxtapositions of line and colour. Um, so I, I've always got people like him in the back of my mind. And then I discovered Monet and um, and Matisse. And these are the people I've got on my wall in my studio to keep look, to keep look at. Um, when you started your apprenticeship as a printer, your father actually gave you a Penguin book, 500 Years of Printing, yes. as a gift. And yeah. I thought I would ask what books... Uh, should people kind of uh, what books would you recommend people check out or especially for aspiring kind of printmakers is, are there any in particular oh dear <laughs> no I can't think of any oh, okay well how about if you send me send me some links afterwards and we can link them up in the yeah, show notes okay yeah. so yeah anyone that's listening check it out on the um, website yeah I can't think top man I can't think of you know well, I've got. I've actually got something at the end of this this list of questions that might uh, spark spark some some uh, inspiration. Mm. So there's a sense that uh, once you know how to set type, that there's there's like not much to it, and I don't mean that disrespectfully. Uh, and I know there's people like Anthony Burrell who've become quite well known. And he developed his style whilst attending your workshops. Uh, what do you think about the success of people like Anthony? And you know, without criticizing him, for example. Uh, do people lack uh, the appreciation for the details or something with the with the new way of kind of mass producing these no, things? I think um, Anthony was one of my students at the college, and um, he's a very charming guy, you know, and he's his work's fantastic, he's a lovely man, um, and he's one of the people who picked it up. But a lot of the students who came through me at the college, you know, they're all lovely people, and some of them have done very well, uh, and they're all intelligent, talented people and they've used what they've got, you know, in front of them, so to speak. And I think Anthony's a good example, yeah. And uh, somebody else who you could uh, consider your apprentice, so Kelvin Smith. Yeah. Um, he also runs out of your studio in Kennington, is that correct? No, he's got his own shop near me. Oh, OK. But um, why did you decide that he was the person that you wanted to kind of take under your wing of all the people? Well, I didn't. Right. He, uh, he, he, knocked, he he just left college. He knocked on my door when I was in Clarkerwell. I went three or four times, and I didn't really have a lot of work. And uh, <laughs> he was persistent, so I, in the end I said, yes, come in. And uh, a good boy, and 
stayed like four years with me, I think. Right. Yeah. Um, so you've worked with some absolute legends, people like Hans Jorg Meyer. Hans Jorg Meyer. Meyer, there you go. <laughs> Dieter Rott. Yeah. Alan Fletcher, yeah. Colin Forbes. Uh, and are there any commonalities between these people? Thing, things that you know you identified that made them who they were. Um, well, as I said earlier, it was Frosso was the catalyst. Um, but Hansio came through the... He brought the Watford, he brought the concrete poetry movement into Britain. Uh, gave it his voice and he printed books and did things like that. And, uh, and he was a very... He's still, Hansio is still around. He's still working. He's about my age, I think. Um and he had his own uh, sort of severe way of working, very rigid, very black and white, only used for Tudor type face, you know, no punctuation. Oh, wow. He's very, oh, very... Interesting. Oh, yeah. So he's got his own very rigid face. He was a different take from Anthony, you know, but the same, they had the same kind of approach, but, but quite different. Um, I'm going to change the subject a little bit. This is uh, a, like a massive deviation, but uh, not to bring up something which is particularly sad, you know, that's going to uh, bring up a, a, anything bad, but obviously your your partner sadly passed away in 2010. Yeah. And yeah. I thought it was important to bring up because, you know, other people go through similar experiences. And as a creative, as someone who's often very dedicated to what you do, it's nice to have someone who wholeheartedly supports you in your creative endeavours. Well, she certainly did, yeah. Celia, Celia Stothard, yeah. And yeah. We, we got married in the end. So. so I just wondered if there was, you know, you produced a book for her, didn't you? And I thought I, maybe yeah, you could talk about her a little bit. I, should have, I meant to bring it, actually. I forgot to bring it. I should have wrote it. Um, I met, Celia was a very talented woman. She was a singer, performer, and a very good designer. And she'd... Um, and teacher, she taught at uh, Croydon College of Art for a long time. When I think when it was a good college, so much like now. Um, and we met, and um, you know we hit it off, and she knew what I did, and and she liked all that um, dedication to a certain approach to work, and uh, um, you know we bought this big collection together. You know it took us like two years to shift it. And, she was wholeheartedly behind that. She was, she loved the type. She made the system to, to keep tabs on it and the catalogues and things, and uh, hugely supportive. Um, and we worked together on certain projects. And sometimes she would, she would um, be a very good critic. When we we did work together, or something I did on my own, she would always look at it and, or I'd ask her opinion, or just comments and so on and it was always very very intelligent sound comments she would make so do you think you become you know who you are today without without her support um i tried to think because uh yes i think i don't know you know i met her 20 years ago yeah um there's something about books that kind of long after that we're gone that they live on and tell the stories of our lives and the book that you've created, it documents your life and work up to date. And, you know, for anyone that's within the creative industries, you'll be familiar with your work. Obviously, your legacy is certainly cemented. Uh, but do you feel like your work is done and what do you intend to focus on moving forward? Well, the first thing to say that the book 
I was actually, um, it's got my work in it, but it was created by John Walters. Yeah. Who was the editor of I Magazine. He was a fantastic writer. And we, because Celia started the book off about 12 years ago. And then it it went away. And then Lawrence King, the publisher, he came into the, into the, uh, under the scene that, interested in it for some reason I can't remember now but when it was kind of mooted that they would do the book I said well look I said you know I need, I need someone to write it because I can't and I asked John if he would and he said he would and he did a fantastic job so he's the author of the book his name's on the title page and um, he is the editor of I magazine and Simon Esterson who is the art director of I I asked Simon if he would design the book so he was the art director on the book, on the, on the, on the whole thing. So that between the two of them, they did the book. And there was a third person who was my assistant then who went to work for Simon, who was called John Keelty, and he did the day-to-day typography and the work on the, So there's three of them really worked on the book. Um, and uh, I'm very grateful to the, the trio. Of, um, and so just out of interest, like how is a... a a book impacted your life in any? Is it? Has it done anything for you? I, I know you appeared on Jonathan Ross show. You informed me of prior. <laughs> <laughs> is that something we can YouTube? You could do if you want. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wicked! I'll uh, pull, I'll pull uh, that up. Uh, <laughs> um, Basically, a lot of people produce books in order to establish themselves as a as a figurehead in a certain area. I mean, I believe that this book's obviously come about a lot more organically than that. It does yeah. Um, but has it? Is it? Have you seen a rise in profile as a result? No, I don't think so. No, not that I can tell. Yeah, no. Well, I think what a book does like that for you is that um, it allows you to look back at all your work and um, and assess it, reassess it a bit, see, see where you went wrong, where you went right. You know. Do you look at stuff and go, oh? <laughs> mm, sometimes, but you also you forget what you've done. Sometimes you think, well, that was, that's an idea which I haven't pursued lately. You know, I might pick that one up again. <laughs> yeah, it keeps you going. Um, so before I ask the final question, uh, where can people get hold of you? What are you working on at the moment? And maybe if you wanted to kind of plug your workshops and all that kind of stuff. No, I don't do the workshops anymore, but uh, I think Calvin's going to start doing them again. And I might do them with, in conjunction with him. I'm just uh, I'm working on um, various projects for one or two commissions. And in between these commissions, I work on projects like when a certain anniversary comes up, like um, I did a print about the Battle of Agincourt and um, 100 years since Dylan Thomas had died, last, was it last year, year before? I did a big piece on, on his Under Milk Wood radio play. And um, this, the, the, this year I'm working on something about the Russian Revolution, 100 years since it happened in October. Is kind of part of your philosophy just, well, and it doesn't necessarily need to be philosophy, but do you just pursue your interests? Uh, yes, I think if I, if I can make a decent print out of it, it might um, be interesting in the end. Um, so just for the people listening, uh, Alan's actually kindly signed his book and I'm going to be giving that away to a listener of the show. So if people, uh, in order to actually be in with a chance of, of uh, having that... If you could head over to the website, sign up to my mailing list, and I'll be putting it out for the listeners there. Uh, thank you very much for doing that. <laughs> and if 
as a final question, if you could just give uh, what you would consider to be the one piece of advice that would help people live a better and more meaningful life, whether that be creatively, um, I think that's a nice way to end. Well, I'll um, I can do it by quoting Anthony Burrell. Uh, work hard, be nice to people. Work hard, be nice to people. <laughs> yeah, I like it. It's good. All right, it was uh, absolutely lovely to meet you. I really appreciate you sharing your uh, your background and uh, hope people who have tuned in have enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, it was lovely to meet okay, you. Ricky, thank you very much. So have I. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share. I'd also like to invite you to an ongoing project called the Move Me mailing list. If you enjoyed the show, I'm confident you'll enjoy this newsletter. It contains links to all the great content I've uncovered each month, along with insights of any interesting opportunities I've discovered. You can subscribe to this by visiting my website at rickyrichards.com. A special thanks to Frankie Byrne and James Utting. They're the tech heads that make this show possible. The intro music was composed by Dom Stores Fox. And thanks again to Reese Chapman for introing me to Lou and Lizette, the wonderful folks at Factory Studios in London, where this show is recorded. Finally, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a great day and keep creating. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>